Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone. And I don't need to tell you that we are in very dynamic times, uh, a lot of uncertainties. Um, businesses are trying to figure out how to navigate through uh, and be successful going forward, trying to balance both the short term and the long term. And we're going to talk a little bit uh, more today about the value of strategic planning, what separates successful companies from less successful companies. And uh, I'm really thrilled to have our guest, uh, Alan Cohen, who brings a wealth of experience uh, in successful businesses, but also as an investor uh, in businesses and a strategic advisor. Um, Alan is a partner at DCVC, a leading deep tech venture capital firm where he brings uh, that background both in product development, but also go-to-market uh, and growth. Uh, he has been an executive with hands-on experience in very large enterprises as well as startup companies. His past three ventures have created over $3 billion in aggregate value and have shipped $6 billion in product today. Alan serves on the board of directors of numerous DCVC portfolio companies in physical and cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and enterprise sectors. Alan's also been an advisor and investor in multiple billion-dollar companies. Prior to joining DCVC, Alan was the chief commercial officer and served on the board of directors at Illumio, one of DCVC's portfolio companies. And before that, he served in marketing leadership roles, VP of marketing at Nasera which was acquired by VMware for $1.3 billion. Prior to Nasera, Allen served as VP and head of marketing for Cisco's $25 billion enterprise business, managing over 400 people and 25 product lines. Uh, he came to Cisco via the acquisition route. Um, that was nearly a half a billion dollar acquisition from Airspace, where he was an early employee and served as the VP of marketing and product management. So quite a list of accomplishments, Alan, and I'm excited to uh, learn from you today and welcome to Market Impact Insights. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for um, having me. And I'd say listening to your uh, introduction, when you meet that guy that you just described, would you introduce him to me? <laughs> Pretty impressive, <laughs> huh? I know. He sounds good on paper, right? Uh, anyway, uh, it sounds good. So, Alan, maybe a good place to start is you've had this long and accomplished career in technology, but you've really made this interesting bridge from being a leader inside large enterprise organizations, inside the corporate wall, so to speak, to then uh, coming at it from a different lens, being a strategic advisor and investor. What has that transition been like for you? Um, it's a great question, Dan. You know, it's been very different. So I've obviously, like yourself, Spent a lot of time in operating roles, um, and you know, shifting now more to the investing and board side of things, um, it's different on a bunch of levels. On a very frank level, you know, when you're in an operating role, you have the responsibility and the authority, um, and when you're on the investing side, you have the responsibility, but you're obviously not running companies day to day. So. A lot of your time is spent with the senior management of these companies, 
helping them uh, work through uh, kind of the bends in the road that, you know, come in their business um, on building uh, executive teams. And, um, you know, basically, you know, for those of us like myself who have go-to-mark experience, you know, helping them there or could be helping them on the engineering side. So, you know, you actually have to bring a very different mindset uh, because you have to recognize you're in a situation which you're is different than you were before. And I have this thing that I pay a lot of attention to, which is, you know, confirmation bias. And the easy way to net it out is I'm saying 50% of what I know is valuable and 50% of what I know is completely wrong. And the hard part of the job is parsing in between those two when you work with these different companies. Yeah, so it's both a, a variety of different scenarios. So you get a lot more breadth, but one of the things that, you know, leaders like you or myself of teams, you know, oftentimes when we're in in the fray, right, inside of these companies, we've often wondered what would it be like if we had more pure thinking time, right? So because we're not tied to kind of that day-to-day and a more of the tactical operations. So I, I would imagine that you just have uh, maybe a bit more time to really just do pure thinking, right? In, in terms of strategic thinking and, and, and how do you, how do you balance that? Is that, was that uh, much of an adjustment for you? Well, you know, it was a lot of adjustment, right? So, you know, I have four board seats that I sit on. They're all dramatically different. One is in physical security. One is in AI. One is actually in network security and performance management. And I just made a um, investment in the area of um, uh, advanced surgery and navigation, right? So, What's interesting is that you have a lot of context switching, right? So you have a background, for example, earlier in your career in UC. You're an expert in UC. You know the market, everything around it. So on Monday, I could be working on AI, and on Tuesday, I could be working about how to make physical venues more secure from from gun threats. So um, you do have thinking time, but you actually have to work through the uh, the uh, context switching. Um, to do that. And, you know, so it takes, so it turns out it's a lot more work than I really expected on the way in. Um, I mean, I've done four startups and I've obviously dealt with over a dozen venture, good venture firms um, and the partners who are my board members and those companies, but it's different when you're, when you're on the outside looking in. So, um, you know, you have to do a, a lot of extra homework and some of that to your point is thinking and testing assumptions. And, you know, the, you have to kind of balance, when you test the business assumptions of an executive team, you're not completely on the inside and you hire an executive team to run a business. So you want to be very supportive on that, but then also you all, you want to challenge it because you're not as far inside. So you're not as beholden to uh, potential group think or just being inside the tornado. So it's, it's a very different mindset. I kind of talk about it. I think about it as like getting another graduate degree. Right, you're you're forced to study a different way to work, um, and uh, you know it's exciting, uh, exhausting, and um, you know exhilarating. Uh, I guess all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, definitely that that objective freedom uh, that you were talking about a little bit in terms of uh, uh, you, you know coming in with that advisory perspective is really really interesting and. You know, as I mentioned before, I mean, businesses right now facing a lot of volatility with the coronavirus, the impact on the economy, things are really turbulent. Alan, for companies that are still wanting to seek that sustainable growth, they're still trying to take the long view, right? Because we've got a lot of turbulence in the short view. 
What do you feel are some of the most important components of their strategic planning that can not eliminate maybe, but at least reduce some of their business risk? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things that you have to do that's differently is you have to kind of look at your addressable market and its buying patterns and saying, will it exist exactly the same way? Um, you know, uh, when we come out of the virus, whether it's two quarters, four quarters or eight quarters that are, you know, could have the potential to be extremely bumpy for companies. So you, you have to say, what is what I was doing? Is it going to be as relevant to people and as critical? Um, secondly, I think, you know, um, for those of us like yourself and I, Dan, that have you know like strong go-to-market backgrounds, you're you know if your if your job and your company is based on visiting people and selling them things, you have to really rethink that. Um, uh, not just in the short term, but in the long run, right? Because I think people, well, I'm not sure all of us want to be home all the time on Zoom, and I love Zoom; uh, it's a fantastic service. Uh, you people are going to travel less uh, for business uh, for a long time. Um, so I think how you capture people's attention and communicate with them is a little bit different. And it's not just the transition for, for, for digital, but I think people are going to, you know, their, their boots are going to be on the ground about their business. They're going to be very grounded. So I think there's a degree of authenticity, realism, and plain speak, um, for your customers and your partners in the market that we're all going to really going to have to double down on uh, as opposed to kind of, kind of hyperbole and arm waving. So I think, you know, there's yeah, some thing that there, I mean, I don't know how you see it. Right. But I think it's um, people are, look, people are scared about their health, their family, their income and their, um, and their savings. And that's, you know, the thing about the virus, I mean, we've always had economic downturns, but very rarely have they been mated to physical threats right up to the potential of becoming very sick or losing your life. So people are going to be very grounded in a different way. And some of that's plant, some of that's what you need to do today. But I think, you know, it takes years to work for some of these things to work through before they return to an old norm, if they return to an old norm. Yeah, I think that's a good point, which is when, when things subside, and, you know, we, we hear about the new normal and, and, and people adjusting and, and kind of living differently. Um, they're, they're securing products and services certainly differently now. But it may be that even when things really do settle down, we have vaccination, we have, we have this thing under control, that things will never get back to where they were because actually there's an element of discovery, you know, during this process. For example, so many more people that are working in uh, virtual team environments than ever before. Um, and some of this like forced versus uh, many companies that were maybe more visionary and had some of their teams doing this anyway. But people are more people are being exposed to a different way of working. And will will there actually be this revelation that says, hey, wait a minute, maybe my my old way of thinking about how we get business done just has been changed forever? Well, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, forever is a long time, but for a considerable period of time. So, for example, so, you know, maybe you don't go to the office five days a week. Maybe you go to the office three days a week. And so, you know, so there's, so, I mean, if you look at it from like 50,000 feet, you come down, there's going to be some macro trends. Like, you know, there's going to be different ways that think about 
physical real estate if you're a business. Uh, there's going to be disciplines in how people work, both some people being somewhat remote and some people being physical, right? And I don't think companies have ever gotten that part really. We've all been on a conference call and you know, you just hear people moving things around on a table and you're trying <laughs> right. to get in the middle of it, right? So I think we're going to have to build you know, some discipline to do that. But I think the most significant thing uh, for your business is are you building and making and selling something that's absolutely essential because we're all going to learn uh, through this process. Uh, inevitably, we learn through this process, but this one's very stark. Uh, do I really need something or not? And, you know, the economic re reality of companies um, tightening their belts um, to kind of survive the um, this thread of uh, the virus that we're, and that economic turmoil that we're going through will make people become very realistic what they can live in without. And then when it comes back, they'll say, did I ever need it? I mean, I mean, a great example, uh, not a great example, but a, an interesting example in, in the economy is the, you know, the idea of, you know, people went from having a landline phone and a cell phone, and then they just have a cell phone. Uh, people went from having cable services to particularly younger people kind of over, just over the top streaming services. So, you know, we've, you know, we've know how, how economic and technology disruption works and, you know, examples of kind of replacement. Uh, but now these things are going to be very different. And, you know, as you know, when I look at how work's going to happen, we've all become dependent on both fragile and very pressurized supply chains. And with you know, the upsweep of people trying to buy goods and services and online and having them delivered, which was already a trend that's been accelerated by uh, people sheltering in place. Um, will people go back to consuming at a uh, retail environment the same way that they did when they're now more accustomed to buying things? I mean, I think there's, I mean, you live in Seattle, right, Dan? I mean, I think there's a reason why companies like Amazon are adding 100,000 workers. I mean, some of them are going to be on, you know, past, past uh, you know, the, the uh, virus and the economic downturn. So work patterns are going to shift and supply chains are going to shift and, not everything is going to, you're going to want to shift cross country and people are going to rethink where they build things. And the, you know, in agriculture, you know, for example, in agriculture, people worry about two things. They worry about price and assurance of supply. And I think that is always true of supply chains, but it's going to be, you know, it's going to go from businesses right through consumers. They're going to be thinking about these things very carefully. So you have to say, where does my industry, my company, my job lie? And these shifting realities and you got to make some you know forward uh you have to create some forward thinking on how things are going to um, adopt and adapt yeah it's really about being proactive and anticipating and making that best 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 effort best guess if you will based on you know with the information that you've got but it's definitely looking forward to be in a reactive mode is going to be really difficult, right? Because uh, the, the competitive race is really to be those that are more proactive and better able to anticipate. And if they need to reposition their um, business processes to better adapt to, new, you know, as you were talking about, new mindset, new, new, new patterns for acquiring. 
products and services that those uh, would seem to be the winning companies that are able to do that? Yeah, I mean, what I what I think crises do is they break through kind of paucities of imagination, right? So you never envision something happen until something really severe happens, and then that forces you to change your pattern. So that's the reactive mode. The question is kind of anticipating the changes. Um, is the is the I think the really hard work for all of us to do, and then to your point, adapt and vector toward those directions that are going to be more resilient going forward. Uh, so I think it's 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 going to be a super super interesting period of time and very complicated. I mean, I mean the whole issue around pandemics is that we have a very interconnected world with global travel. Um, and while obviously there's a pullback in travel, um, at some point in time, you know, people are going to start traveling again, right? You're going to want to take the kids to Disneyland. You're going to want to make that trip to Tokyo with your family <coughs> you've been talking about. So things will change. Um, I'm on the board of a company called Evolve. It's a physical security company that screens thousands of people an hour without having to kind of empty your pockets um, or, you know, uh, be padded down and it uses a bunch of technologies. And what it, what it does, it, it actually introduces the ability to safely screen people for all sorts of weapons, uh, mm. very rapidly. And it, so it's lowered the bar for people who normally didn't do that. You know, there's going to be other forms of screening coming, right? People are going to be thinking, you know, they're, you know, we, we tend to be reactive to, you know, things like, um, you know, a, a terrorism or a shooting incident. We think about all my, you know, how do I make my environment safer? And now I think, you know, things like, um, you know, bio and medical types of screening are going to become more common. We'll get used to it. I mean, and I think that's, you know, you, you really can't anticipate it easily until you've, until it's happened, but you know, people are going to think about it. And some people will take actions. I think we've all seen pictures, you know, like of the airports in Singapore, where in other airports, where everyone that walks through goes through a thermal screen to see if they have a fever, yeah. right? It's just so, you know, I mean, so our mobility as people, our supply chains, the way that we trace and monitor uh, various th thoughts, you know, areas of threats. Um, how we, what goods and services we procure and for people who, you know, who have the responsibility for selling and marketing them, how they interact with people on these subjects are, are all going to, I mean, they're evolving anyway. And something like the crisis that we're in, um, accelerate, um, some of these trends that were probably on their way anyway. Yeah. Yeah. A lot to think about. And, um, just the whole landscape um, really changing. But one of the things that, that hasn't changed is that when companies think about competing and, and how do they continue to compete successfully uh, going forward, big part of that is making sure they truly understand who is their audience, right? And there's got constant reaffirmation in terms of segmentation, mm -hmm. prioritization of who, who, are, who are they trying to reach at the end of the day. And then through that, um, then understanding how they can deliver value and then be able to differentiate. So you've worked with so many companies, both within but also as an advisor, Alan. And what 
have you seen that separate the successful businesses from the less successful businesses when it comes to this whole idea of market segmentation, competitive differentiation? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a great question. Dan. It's actually the Uber question, right, of uh, anybody who has a go-to-market you know, leadership role in their, in their career. You know, the first thing that people, I think, have to understand is, um, you know, and I, and I don't love the phrase, but the idea of product market fit. And I have this definition of product market fit is that people are willing to buy your product and not know who you are. You've kind of made it. Right. Because what you're doing is so valuable, even though you may not have very kind of strong brand or communications coverage, um, then, you know, you know, are you building something that, that's actually indispensable to people? And then, you know, from that, you have to say, well, who exactly am I indispensable to? Am I indispensable to an industry or an industry sector? Or do I have a psychographic profile where? There are certain things about human beings, whether they're businesses or consumers um, in, in their purchasing, that I, I just appeal to them in a very dramatic way. And um, that's, to me, kind of the really important work that companies need to do. Uh, it's the old days, you know, we used to build stuff in tech and then, you know, we were smart and we kind of knew the problems, but uh, we didn't always know. And not all of them, you know, like my first startup built these amazing um, network infrastructure for 3G. Um, the problem was there were no 3G devices and the company ultimately didn't make it, right? So, you know, am I building something that's indispensable? Do I know exactly, you know, which industries or human beings find that indispensable? And number three is how is my timing? Have I landed the plane on the aircraft carrier carrier before it runs out of fuel, uh, you know, because you can be in front of a market or you can be late in the market. And those type of kind of segmentation exercises, as, as you implied, Dan, is really the hard work to do. And if you're a startup, are you allocating, even if you're a large company, are you allocating your capital and your human resources in that kind of timely manner to be able to get that right? That's the, that's the really interesting dance. That and, and, and strategy and planning that companies need to do. And Alan, as you've worked with so many different kinds of companies and, and many of them in startup mode, and obviously um, many of these have been enormously successful, um, but when you're evaluating, um, let's say, an early, uh, early stage company uh, working with new technologies, are there certain things that you look for? So when you're deciding, hey, this feels like a winning bet to me. What are the things you look for? Well, you never do feel, <laughs> right? So you, uh, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I implied what some of those are is, you know, the, the first thing I always look at is the team. Um, one of the experiences I've had in my career is uh, I have worked in a bunch of uh, uh, tech startups that have uh, competed very heavily with large incumbents. And the traditional game, right, the innovator's dilemma game that people talk about is that you have very large. So I both worked at Cisco and competed with Cisco multiple times. And when we were building airspace, uh, we understood the customer problem better than uh, Cisco, which was the largest incumbent at that time on what problems they were really facing in adopting Wi-Fi in the enterprise. So this is 175 years ago, right? This is 
2002, 2003. And it's hard to believe now, but back then there was no widespread Wi-Fi. People weren't sure whether it was going to be safe in the enterprise. Consumers were adopting it rapidly. And, you know, we understood the thing that they did not understand well, which is that people didn't really understand RF. They didn't know if minus 85 dBm was a good thing or a bad thing. You know, so the team, uh, which was composed of the fan founders of Absolute that I got to work with that were absolutely brilliant engineers. But what we really understood is how do we remove the obstacle for adoption? And that company grew very quickly and then became part of Cisco. So you never, that's why you never throw stones at people because you might be working with them shortly thereafter. So I look for teams. <laughs> that's right. So yeah. I look for teams that really dig in to both the technology and the market size. Um, I look for teams that have kind of diversity of skills and human beings because you, you're, you're trying to figure out something, um, either something that's brand new that didn't exist before, which is really hard, or how to take on a significant incumbent in a sector where they may be very dominant. And then I look for teams that are also going to have very strong go-to-market plans. And, you know, there's there's old um, adage saying, how do you eat an elephant? And they says one very small bite at a time. So you don't really attack markets broadly. You attack them actually fairly narrowly in the beginning. And getting that right makes a difference because there's a, there's a, history is replete with great technologists who couldn't figure out how to take something to go to market and less uh, compelling technology may win by teams that have actually figured those parts out. So I look for those uh, type of elements. And of course, you know, now as an investor, I look at teams that are going to be kind of efficient and smart with capital too, whether the business is growing rapidly or not. Um, uh, fiscal discipline always matters. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When I got to Cisco yeah. in the 90s, uh, we had a CFO named Larry Carter who used to do this presentation. He'd show you the value of a penny on earnings per share and what it meant to everybody. And uh, it was a pretty pretty interesting le- lesson. The flip side, you also want teams that are willing to spend the grand invest aggressively when a market opportunity opens in front of them. So, you know, um, that that part matters a lot, too. Uh, and, you know, we, you know, so you look for best in class teams and you look for great market segments and you look at, and particularly for us in deep tech, because a lot of things that we invest in, um, don't have, you know, two and three year market cycles. They could be five or 10 year market cycles. Um, you tend to look for, uh, both teams and markets that are built to last that. So, you know, a lot of things we do have a lot of machine learning and computational advantage and a lot of deep science. And not all of that goes to market quickly. So we do a lot of technical and market due diligence, uh, I think, um, versus somebody who might be, you know, investing in the next marketing automation app, um, which, you know, has an existing market and might be, you know, better, faster, cheaper. Yeah, yeah. Well, a, a lot to to think about, and but very uh, predictive. And obviously, your track record is really good, Alan. So, um, really, really valuable advice. And and I wanted to tap in a little bit to your deep background in uh, security. And obviously, you know, one of the things that is a, a bit scary about our current situation with the virus and all the disruption, uh, it seems like um, that that might 
create some uh, even additional vulnerability uh, beyond that, which we already have, have been more focused on the last couple of years. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are, you know, given where we're at with this disruption, we're already starting to see uh, some of the bad people uh, try to take advantage of, um, uh, you know, people's fears and our anxiousness, you know, for solutions and try to manipulate, you know, through um, through various um, bad um, tactics. Um, what what are your thoughts on on our ability to mitigate some of the maybe additional risks from a security perspective that this whole uh, coronavirus situation has created? Well, you know, what I would say is, you know, I think it was Jefferson it's attributed to who said that. Yeah, eternal vigilance is the enduring price of freedom. Um, nobody actually knows whether he really said it, but he got the quote. Um, so, you know, inevitably, you know, cybersecurity is an industry that you're constantly working at, right? Um, you have an asymmetry of, um, uh, in, of power, right, between hackers and then organizations or individuals trying to protect themselves, right? There are uh, what Tom Friedman used to call super empowered individuals. So those things occur. Um, what I think, you know, obviously, as more people work remotely, you will see, you know, technologies uh, like my old company, Illumio, and companies like Sentinel One on, on the endpoint that are, you know, provide, you know, very good support against people who work more remotely. And, you know, when more of communication is remote, so for example, you have to be careful about things like phishing attack, right? as opposed to somebody just walking over and talking to you about something. So you may be seeing a lot more electronic communications. And then I think the other issue, which is, is a very complicated one, is the authenticity of what you interact with um, on a real basis. We've all seen an upswing, for example, in our phones, right? Where, you know, you now you, now you start to, you know, your cell phone starts to tell you spam risk, right? Or telemarketer. Mm -hmm. Right. Because and so I think it is a non-ending battle, which is part of the nature of having a digital community that we're going to do. So I'm, I'm not sure I would attribute the threats better or worse. It's like my earlier comment. Certain trends are have the potential to accelerate. And so as things accelerate, you you have to deal with when one of your more of your workers are remote. You need to do that. Um, there is an excellent. Um, you know, debate right now, and actually a blog written today by the CEO of Zoom because of Zoom bombings. And, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, questioning. But the, the core issue with Zoom is, you know, six months ago, they were doing 10 million meetings a day, and now they're doing 200 million. And they were, for the most part, um, Selling to, you know, if you sell to an enterprise organization, the IT knows how to configure things. They put policies on who's allowed to, you know, dial in and who's allowed to gain control of a screen, which is different when people are just kind of jumping on it like, um, like a Skype call. Um, and so, you know, organizations and entities are going to have to adapt and things like cyber are going to have to adapt um, significantly um for this um the, the you know this evolution i mean one of the greatest things you know there is this all this pressure on the consumer supply chain and if you go on to amazon and say hey look i'd like you know i'd like to buy some masks you know you go to the comments and you can't tell whether they're counterfeit or whether you're there what's being offered is real or not um 
What's interesting is, that, you know, from a marketing point of view, strong supply chains and strong brands have a very interesting opportunity to reassert themselves in this environment uh, because people are going to, you know, be more attuned to risk for a period of time. So I'm not sure I'm completely answering your question, Dan. Um, but, you know, I think it's the point you made earlier. Adaption is going to be the name of the game, you know, you know, the name of the play moving forward. So even things like, you know, the, the things that we see in cyber is are going to have to adapt just as well. Um, it is not uh, without, I say this tongue in cheek, that um, uh, we name the Illumio product the, the adaptive um, security platform. Uh, because just the nature of computing is, is, you know, changed so dramatically. So many things have moved to the cloud, right? Where you don't necessarily have physical control, um, of your IT assets. So more things have moved to software and have to become adaptive to do it. So, um, I think we'll see probably some new categories of cybersecurity, um, software evolve, um, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, to do that. I think there will be a lot of thoughts about you know, impersonation and phishing. And so, you know, it's, I think it's a super interesting time and complicated and, and probably, you know, will not be completely free. Uh, people are just going to have, um, be super careful about things. Yeah. It's interesting. You made the comment before that there's this opportunity for established brands to reassert themselves. And, you know, so part of this is really, there's an emotional aspect, right? The kind of psychological aspect that says at times of, uncertainty do we gravitate towards those things we trust the most right we're just we're searching to cling on to and so it seems like you know strong brands that have a legacy a very positive legacy it's just now more than ever well i once again i didn't say that they have to have a legacy Uh, i I said strong brands uh, have a chance to assert themselves some of them have legacy some don't i mean the example zoom has an incredible brand and yes, they've had a little bit of kind of turbulence as they've scaled. But, you know, it's interesting. Zoom has gotten all of this attention, but you know, nobody seems to talk about WebEx. Um, yeah, Alan, where, where is WebEx in all of this, right? Because, you know, uh, there, there is a brand, right, that's that's been in market for a while. For a long and time, yeah. It's a, well, yeah. I mean, I think they're probably, I don't, I don't know, I don't track it, but I'm sure WebEx is a very good business for Cisco. But, you know, you know, what was the, for the uh, Shakespeare quote? Some people are born the greatness of great. Some people have greatness thrust upon them. Um, you know, the playing field for remote um, work and video was kind of, I mean, Zoom had been growing very rapidly because of its ease of use and value proposition. But the playing field was kind of open to everybody you know, 30, 60 days ago as the um, people started adapting to the virus. But it feels to me, once again, and I don't have the stats, and the stats would matter a lot, that in the short term, Zoom has really stepped up on the brand side of things versus GoToMeeting or WebEx. Yeah, that's a a great point. The distinction between the strength is not necessarily based on a timeline of existence. It can be upon, you know, just being really good at at having the right message at the right time, executing extremely well, and, and just taking advantage of uh, opportunity. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, market shifts happen really rapidly, right? I mean, product lines get, I mean, I'm I'm speaking to you over a pair of um, AirPods um, through my computer and uh, through my Mac. And like AirPods didn't exist five years ago. And I don't know what is it? It's like a $7 billion business now. I mean, how big are the other headset vendors combined? So, you know, what, what I think that we all, what's different about the economy now, it has little to do specifically with the virus, but the virus could accelerate, you know, at the situation where it could accelerate it, is that, you know, brands have the opportunity to, to catch on very, very rapidly. By the way, I did not personally indulge in Tiger, Tiger King. But, you know, like, I mean, like, just think about, you know, there's an entertainment product for whatever reason, uh, lots of people watched, um, you know, some kind of reality TV show. So whether it's a good or service, uh, whether it is a piece of digital content, um, you know, whether it is something in the uh, healthcare field, it doesn't really matter. Uh, People can adapt very very rapidly and i and i think sometimes you really can't plan for that long term but it goes back to first principles is are you really on top of your market do you really understand your company your products and your customers and are you effective at you know bringing those those components together and and it may sound like a platitude but it seems like it's truer now um there seems like there is less switching costs for people to move from mm-hmm. various products and services than there used to be. Yeah, yeah, kind of a mindset shift there. And, you know, Alan, one of the things I've really appreciated having worked with you before is you're someone that is always thinking ahead. You're looking ahead, right? Um, you understand the importance of that. And I'm curious, I mean, yes, we're, we're in a lot of turbulence. There's a lot of unknowns right now. But when you think about the future, what most excites you? Oh, I have very clear thoughts on this, Dan. And uh, for me, if I look, I mean, being uh, a somewhat gray-haired member of the technology industry, um, you know, we've spent the last couple of decades effectively taking atoms, physical things, to create bits. Right? We have built data centers and uh, unified communications platforms and firewalls and networks and servers and storage devices, right? And we've actually taken metal and electricity and we've created bits. And that and the economy has been very dominant that way. And right, and I think, you know, software eats the world is, you know, kind of the paradigm of that. Um, I think what excites me most is actually the reverse about to happen. And what I mean is that we're now going to take all this computing power that we've built and we're going to put it to work against physical industries, agriculture, medicine, manufacturing. And this is where my firm invests in things like this, computational biology, the delivery of healthcare and healthcare services. So we're going to go, we're going to put bits, atoms, I'm sorry, we used to put atoms to work in the service of bits. Now we're going to put bits to service, um, atoms. Um, we are investors in a company called pivot bio, 
that is using um, artificial intelligence to create microbes uh, that pr- continuously produce nitrogen in the soil, what that is going after is actually chemical fertilizer. So you do not have to use chemical fertilizer, right? And that, that was engineered through science, through, through, through uh, uh, microbiology, uh, but also machine learning. We're seeing it in you know, robotics. Uh, on, you know, we've always had robotics and assembly lines, and now they're coming closer and closer to the things in everyday life. Uh, whether it's vertical farming um, or packing um, boxes um, on an assembly line. And, you know, discreetly, we are seeing the creation of new materials that are not as um, focused on, um, you know, the impact on the planet and have lower carbon footprint. Uh, we're seeing the reemergence of things like safe and distributed nuclear power. All of these uh, revolutions, and there are many more, those are just a couple of simple examples, are being powered on the back of big data and now machine learning and computer vision, you know, building blocks of uh, artificial intelligence. That's what I'm really excited about. Um, I like to say, you know, if... Um, if IT is a $4 trillion economy, well, the rest of the GDP of the worldwide economy is like another $80 billion. So, you know, it's interesting for us in tech, we work in a, what we consider as a very big industry, but on a global scale, it's still actually a relatively small industry, even though it takes up so much of the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange and mutual funds, the attention of the business press. But things like food and healthcare, and uh, transportation and power generation are considerably larger industries than traditional tech. So I'm excited about the swing in the other direction, kind of uh, the idea of the next industrial revolution in these these areas. Well, just listening to you uh, walk through all of that innovation, I mean, that gets me excited because, you know, we're, we're hearing, we're being bombarded with so much bad and scary news right now, but the reassurance that there are smart minds that are continuing to harness technologies that are going to continue to really uh, revolutionize and uh, and just change the whole landscape in terms of the world. Um, that's encouraging. And that's something worth holding on to. Yeah, and it is. And I have to tell you, there is an amazing amount of entrepreneurs and young scientists and people that are throwing themselves into this. Um, it is truly inspiring. I mean, I mean, I feel blessed every day that I remotely even get to work with some of these people. Um, I'm not nearly as smart or as gifted as they are. And, um, you know, so for me to see people, um, you know, create new vaccines, um, to figure out detection for cancer earlier, like, I mean, it's an amazing part. I mean, it's, I mean, I probably, I may have the best job in the world. Uh, I just, I just hope these people don't figure out too quickly that I really can't keep up with them. <laughs> well, you, you've got a great position being able to kind of get early, early view at, at all of that, Alan. So thanks again for joining. Great conversation today and a, a lot for us to think about. Thanks again for joining. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate you taking the time today. And a reminder, if you like this podcast, please take a minute, 
go out to Apple Podcasts, rate and review. It's really important. Uh, share this um, with folks in your network um, and help just build the awareness of that. And also, I want to remind all of you to make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.